This episode of With Love and Justice for All is brought to you by Bliss Books and Wine. Bliss Books and Wine is an independent black-owned bookstore for wine enthusiasts and book lovers. Listed as one of the black-owned bookstores in America that amplify the best in literature by OprahDaily.com, Bliss Books and Wine is your go-to for all your favorite titles, including ebooks and audiobooks. And when we buy from black-owned businesses, we are helping to create a world of racial equity. When ordering online, use the code 846BOOK for a 10% discount. That's 846-B-O-O-K for a 10% discount at blissbooksandwine.com. Exploring the healing and culture building practices of embodied anti-racism. This is With Love and Justice for All with Reverend Ogan Holder and Reverend Kelly Isola. Hello, hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of With Love and Justice for All, the official podcast of Project Sanctus. I'm Reverend Ogan Holder, your co-host, along with my partner in crime, consciousness, and co-creation, Reverend Kelly. How's life going for you? Can you believe we're done with January already? <laughs> no, and I didn't even bother looking for the groundhog today. <laughs> ah, I heard it. Uh, what is the thing? It, we have a quicker spring, a shorter winter. Is that when it sees shadow or not? I don't remember. I don't I, frankly remember either. I, I heard. Phil can't be trusted. Oh, different Phil. Different which is really Phil. what I said. Different Phil. We have a guest today <laughs> whose name is Phil. I'm talking about the groundhog, Phil. Pokes oh. Phil. <laughs> Sorry. I don't. I don't think Phil even noticed. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I just heard Phil. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so, yes, so you're. Missouri. Can't count on the groundhog because the weather changes. You know, today is 66. Two days ago, it was 37. So. Oh, my God. Yeah. yeah that is. As long as that we is continue small. inching towards spring. <laughs> right. Uh, so, the voice you hear is our special guest for today. Uh, February is also, as you should all know by now, Black History Month. And what we thought we would do this month is um, sort of highlight some uh, Black voices that are doing this work. And Phil is the Justice, Equity, and Belonging Program Manager for the YWCA in Columbus, Ohio, a place no stranger to winter. Um, but we will uh, delve into what she does and who she is in a little bit. First of all, as always, thank you to all our listeners and subscribers all over the states, all over the world. As always, follow us on the socials uh, at Get Our Holy On is our tag. If you want to call and leave us a voicemail, let's 413 get holy or 413-438-4659 and before we jump into our conversation with phil kelly uh, what do we got coming up we have our affinity groups one of my favorite ways of spending time with people on the first and third wednesday of every month at 7 30 eastern time uh first wednesday of the month is our communal group and on the third wednesday of the month is our affinity groups where i lead uh, the group the, um, that identifies as white bodies and Reverend Ogan leads the group of people um, that identify as BIPOC. It's, it's probably the reason I say it's one of my favorite ways of spending time with people is because it's really one of the best ways people say, what can I do? How can I help? How do, you know, how do we, you know, change the world? And it really, one of the best places and I find most effective is in affinity groups, because uh, it really does have to start with the individual and you know, dismantling our own structures of oppression within ourselves, but also learn how to move that out into the greater, you know, how to be that in the greater community. So that's the first and third Wednesday, 7.30 Eastern time. You can find out more on projectsanctus.com. Um, under the events, you can find the affinity groups. Ogan has a men better together group um, on the second and fourth Wednesday at eight o'clock Eastern, um, my notes say that the next one is February 28th. So that yes. sounds like there's a break there. So yeah, the it's a it's a it's a break. We're not mean on the 14th because uh, my sister and I I'm in Barbados. My sister and I, we're going to a speed dating event on. Oh. <laughs> <Valentine's laughs> okay, I, 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 will, I will come back with. <laughs> well, dating in Barbados is interesting uh i'll come back with i'll come back with notes uh, so being yeah, a man being yeah so you can come back with how to be better together in speed dating exactly 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 yeah. 
But if you want to know more about Men Better Together group that he runs, you can go to reverendogenholder.com slash men. And then um, finally, our 846 book club is underway, uh, running Mondays, January 22nd to February 26th, Mondays, 7.30 to 9.30 Eastern. Uh, the book that we're working through is called Hospicing Modernity, Facing Humanity's Wrongs and the Implications for Social Activism. And it's really a, a very powerful, really engaging and really inviting us to hospice modernity, which means being willing to, to recognize and speak to and say that we're the end of the world as you know it is here and we have a responsibility to hospice modernity also known as settler colonial uh, thinking and being and acting, you know, hospice that out with integrity. Um, so it's a deeper dive and um, it's a lifelong work and inquiry. So if you haven't come, that's okay. You certainly can catch up, but go to the website, projectsanctus.com, click on the 846 book club to learn more. And of course you can always support our work keep the train running, keep the lights on. You can go to projectsanctus.com slash donate. Um, that's how we get paid. That's how we pay our um, administrative assistants, which is each other. That's how we pay our CFO, which is each other. Um, so projectsanctus.com slash donate. And the one thing you forgot to mention, which is very important that you all check out is our brand new self-based course, uh, called Conscious Anti-Racism. We plan to develop a three-part course. Part one is now up and ready and available for you to participate in. So uh, if you've always been like, oh, I can't make Affinity Group. Oh, I can't make the book club. I can't go to these classes. Or if you were kind of person who's like, I'd rather do this in on my own. And you know, that's can only do so much on your own. But if that's where you want to start, this is a program you can check out. It is self-paced. Uh, you have video modules with Reverend Kelly and I, a lot of um, supplemental material, activities, exercises, all the things. So uh, we were working on this almost most of last year and it's finally up. We're very proud of it and hope that you dig into it as well. Plus, if you have that one friend who's like, I'm never showing up to talk about racism with a bunch of people because, ooh, awkward. Uh, you can send them the link to this so that they can do some work on their own. So that's also on our website and check that out. Gift it to someone. I don't know. It's Black History Month. Give all your other white friends who haven't done some anti-racism work the gift of education. Uh, that's all I got uh, for that. Usually we do a bunch of headlines now. I'm only going to do one because I want to get to the conversation with our guests, but this is sort of related to the work that Phil does. So I'm perusing the interwebs as I do. And this headline on Mother Jones caught my attention says what it's like to celebrate black history in a state where it's banned. And I dug in and it was a fascinating read on how in wait, florida wait wait, wait, uh, wait i was gonna say what? let me guess which state but you get which i i don't think we had a guess that hard i know but <laughs> that was sarcasm okay uh how in florida as you know because of all the legislative changes that have happened that have they they first they came after the um the ap african-american studies course and then it extended to like just elementary school, high school, we can't make people uncomfortable. So we can't talk about real black history or real American history. We can't talk about LGBTQ issues, books are being banned, all the things. So that's happening. So what many parents and families have done decided, you know what, we need to educate our kids. So they started uh, basically black history education programs in Florida um, they call these like third spaces. So it's not school, it's not the library. Um, it's a it's another venue for for kids. And when we say kids now, it's up to 21, so college-age kids. So from middle school, basically up to um, 21, kids are gathering on like Saturdays to learn about real history. And they're calling these freedom schools. 
kind of a bit of a throwback to to the civil rights era days when you had you know you had the freedom writers but you also had freedom schools where people would go learn about mobilization around their voting rights around segregation around all these things so yeah it's a throwback to that and it's fascinating this month they actually started a program for all ages um, with curriculum based around the 1619 project by Hannah Nicole Jones. So take some time to check it out. It's called the blackhistoryproject.org is the website, blackhistoryproject.org. If you are in Florida or know some, I know we have listeners in Florida or you know someone who is in Florida and you're concerned about the education they are receiving or rather not receiving, this is a, this is a real option um, to try out, to check out and good for them. Good for them for basically saying to florida no we're not going down like this and well and what better way to get a kid to do something than tell them you can't yeah right <laughs> you can't have that no we're not going to teach that no this is not available to you i mean what better way to and me growing up the minute you said that I, I would like smile and nod and how do i get around you so are you trying to say that Ron DeSantis is secretly an anti-racist like freedom fighter is that is that what you're trying to say <laughs> no not at all Oh, okay. I'm just Check saying it. the minute that kids find out something <laughs> not available to them, well, you can't do this. They're going to go it's do it. It's a funny thought, though. It, it is. It is. It, he, he, he doesn't know how much of one he is, really. Right. Uh, so anyway, it's so that's... The same for Trump. Uh, there you I go. Mean, you know. That's what, he's the reason why I'm such... Uh, I'm, I've gotten so much into my work is because of that rude awakening we all had in 2016. <laughs> I always said I always said he was a catalyst uh, and people didn't like me to say that. But so, yeah. yeah. So, Phil. So when we think of education around anti-racism, um, for many of us, the YWCA doesn't really jump to mind as like a first option. Um, but apparently it it is. Uh, so let me tell you a little bit about our guest and then we're going to jump in. Uh, Phil uh, grew up in Cincinnati, Ohio, and was part of, or is part of a large extended multicultural family. Their ed academic, I can read, their academic and professional background includes health and wellness, human development, embodied activism, restorative practices, and macro social work. They spent over a decade working in early childhood education, development, as well as direct social service before transitioning to social justice and community development. Uh, Phil studied at Ohio State University, the International Institute of Restorative Practices, Boston University, and the Embody Lab. Uh, Phil founded the Reconnection Circle consulting firm in 2023 and currently serves as the Justice, Equity, and Belonging Program Manager at YWCA Columbus, Ohio. Welcome, welcome to the program. Thank you. Wow, Phil sounds pretty badass. I gotta admit. <laughs> Phil, Phil is pretty badass. And I also yeah. just dated dated myself instead of saying welcome to the podcast. I'm like, welcome to the program. Like I'm on like, you know, <laughs> David Letterman well, late night you. or something. Thanks for you having are... me. Um, I'm excited about this conversation, um, especially after hearing about the amazing programming y'all have going on. So I'm trying to figure out how I can engage uh in some of your sessions well honestly we'd love to have you um not as a participant but like in an instructor as well like you know anytime you want to collaborate uh let's let's do some things but um it was interesting what you mentioned about you know trump's election got you shifted into into doing this work speak speak a little bit more about that because you know for many of us it's it's our our action doesn't go as far as like maybe what Kelly and I are doing, what you are doing. Talk to us about getting really into the work versus just being, you know, a protester or someone who made sure they voted all the time. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so my entry into the work, I would say, started when I um, started engaging with my sorority. Um, I'm part of a multicultural sorority. Um, I was very intentional about seeking out um, this kind of community that was that would give me exposure to um, lots of different backgrounds, ethnicities, uh, faith, you name it. Um, and uh, part of that community, uh, Theta Nu Psi multicultural community um, or sorority, 
Um, part of what drew me to it also was their commitment to social justice. And so I started getting more engaged and, and learning more um, through that. And then also um, my membership uh, to a Unitarian Universalist congregation, uh, which also drew me in because of their work that they were doing locally. And so I was already kind of engaging in the work and um, kind of deepening my own social consciousness and, and racial literacy. Um, but 2016 specifically um, was very jarring for me and a lot of other people, I would say it was uh, a form of collective trauma, um, which, you know, was, was painful. Um, but at the same time, um, like you mentioned before, it was a catalyst because I think a lot of people, um, it was a wake up call for a lot of people um, to realize um, that the country that they thought they were living in or a part of was something completely different under the surface. Um, and so I can relate to that, you know, being catalyzed um, by that specific ele election. Um, and unfortunately, lots of other um, tragedies that followed that. Yeah, I can, um, the catalyst too, like same time for me. I mean, I'd already been doing the work and then Trump comes along and I'm like, oh yeah, I thought I was like working at this and, you know, need to, you know, it, just the awakening and really the awakening more and more of, oh, you know, how privilege really is, you know, and systems of oppression are like, like a virus, right? They mutate and and show up differently and having to to then recognize that and move into that and and um get uncomfortable because it's really easy for me like as a white body to just I don't want to work on that today you know and and just I don't want to be uncomfortable today I don't want to work that hard I don't whatever and really to move into what really am I doing I appreciate that uh, biology analogy. I'm a huge fan of analogies. And so yeah, when you said too. it's like a virus, I automatically think of like, you know, how do you fight an infection? Um, you know, and I think about the role that anti-racism plays in that and kind of that that critical lens or critical race theory, um, which is why the empire is like, ah, we got to get rid of this. We yeah. can't have people, you know, truth telling and using a critical lens um, because then they'll know what we're up to. <laughs> Right. Um, so when I think of, you know, the YWCA, I'm thinking of after school activities, summer programs, stuff like that. Yeah. Um, I, I don't think of here is a place where I'm coming to get my anti-racism education on. Um, where I'm going to find information on seeking restorative justice. So has this always been part of YWCA's programming? And could you talk to us a little bit about what your YWCA does? So actually, I would say you probably know more about YWCA than I did when I started working there. To be completely <laughs> honest, I was really drawn to this specific role um, that was supporting families involved in children's services. Um, and so that's what attracted me to um, YWCA Cincinnati specifically. That's where I was before. Um, but then I started um, getting more and more familiar with the mission, um, which uh, just about all associations share, um, which is to eliminate racism, empower women, and promote peace, justice, freedom, dignity for all. Um, and so looking at how they were kind of focusing on the anti-racism part of their mission. Um, I, I happened to be at the Cincinnati Association during the time where they were really leaning into the anti-racism because um, their programming was exactly what you would expect, right? A lot of um, childcare, um, after-school programming, uh, domestic violence, um, and survivor intervention and support and things of that sort. Um, but uh, while I was there, um, I was able to be part of the development of a training program that focused on um, education, educating the community on implicit bias, um, as well as organizational change. So 
helping other organizations and nonprofits um, in, in and around Cincinnati to, um, to kind of learn more and then figure out how they can take their learnings and, and make some incremental changes to their organization. From that, I was able to um, transition to the Columbus Association where I could commit full-time to um, their training program, which was already blossoming um, and really focused on uh, racial equity. Um, and so when I got there, it was called uh, the DEI program, which everyone knows is diversity, equity, inclusion. Um, but shortly after um, being hired there, I realized that uh, DEI had, you know, become kind of watered down um, in a lot of instances and co-opted. And so we decided to change our name to Justice, Equity, and Belonging um, to really align more closely uh, with our vision and realizing that diversity, a lot of times, is just code for a non-white, non-dominant culture person. So trying to, you know, decenter whiteness and dominant culture in that way, but really um, center justice um, and knowing that justice is kind of a very far off goal. And in the meantime, we need to focus on equity. We need people to know what equity means and how it is different from equality. Um, and we need to focus on belonging um, and push past inclusion, um, which is a good start, but inclusion um, just says, hey, you know, you historically, um, excluded and marginalized person. We're going to let you in the club now, um, but you got to give with the program and, and assimilate, right? Um, instead of saying, hey, we want you to belong um, and we're willing to change and able to, you know, accommodate you and support you um, and really create a better community. So do all the YWCAs around the country offer or have the same program or someone in your position there? Or is this just some of them are unique to where you're at? Um, good question. So I've worked at two different associations and have uh, done some work at the national level. So it's been interesting to see how different each association is. I mean, there are some really small associations that um, their whole association is the size of um, our leadership in, in social justice department, right? So they may only have like five people on staff. But then, you know, my association, you know, is over 100 people. Um, and then you have, you know, associations that are in metropolitan areas versus rural areas. And the, and the, um, the associations in metropolitan areas are more likely to have um, a more robust racial justice um, component as opposed to rural areas. They may be more focused on gender-based violence and having to be a little bit uh, more cautious about how they approach racial justice because of their demographics. Um, and so from association to association, you'll see this common thread of caring for children, knowing that women are, you know, caretakers most of the time um, and, and need support in that way. But also um, some associations will have a heavy, heavy programming around domestic violence or intimate partner violence. Um, and then some might have more programming related to um, anti-racism. Um, and so it kind of depends on the specific locality and what gaps there are. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. So it could, it could, you know, if somebody wants to, you know, is listening and wants to, you know, here's a, an avenue to potentially, you know, because that question, well, what can I do? You know, you can check in with a local YWCA and, see if there is something or how you might be able to contribute or, you know, not like necessarily run a whole program like you're doing, but, <clears throat> but some way to contribute. And I, I love that. Um, I was going to ask you, but you answered my question before I could ask it about the change in the name from the DEI to the, the justice uh, equity and belonging. Cause I was going to ask you like how that came about and why, because I'm um, and the fact that you said you know, the belonging moves beyond the inclusion because uh, inclusion says here it takes, here's the center, the white, right? From which all things are measured. So what's missing from that, you know? And then you bring that, it, it just, it's, you know, it's the same thing with the diversity word. 
you know, there's Mm -hmm. this standard. And so from which all things are measured. um, So if we bring something else, but it's, you know, different than white or, you know, patriarchal or cisgender bring something different into that, then we're diverse, but it's still maintaining that, you know, the, the being, you know, what's at the center as it just props up the system of oppression, but on the outside, it looks like we're being, um, you know, everybody's welcome and, you know, we accept everybody. And, and I, it's one of the hardest things I find in, in our work uh, with Ogan in spiritual communities, in churches, like they love the word diversity, they love the word inclusion, um, but really struggle to make that leap the way you described it from, you know, inclusion to belonging. Yeah, yeah, pushing past that um, tokenizing, um, yeah. you know, just allowing a certain number or, uh, you know, uh, people of color who who speak the right way, dress the right way, you know, have a certain amount of money, as opposed to really pushing past that and thinking about diversity beyond um, our gender and our race with it. Or, 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 you know, having conversations around how do we, how do we get more black folk here? How do we get more trans folk here? How do we, how do we get these, you know, again, more diverse populations in because we're told that that's what we're supposed to do, that that's what, that that's what equity looks like. If, if, if we say that we are people who are for justice and equity, our community has to reflect that. So we got to get these people in here, which is again, not the right motivation, but make that distinction. You mentioned it earlier, make the distinction again between equality and equity um, as you see it. And then how that relates to belonging. Yeah. Um, and I was actually thinking about getting into that, um, but also wanted to just talk about the tokenizing and how harmful that can be when you are saying, oh, let's, you know, invite this one queer person in or, you know, this one black person and kind of the pressure it puts on that one person who, you know, may want to be a part of this community, but is being microaggressed left and right, um, you know, unbeknownst to the people who you think they are being welcoming. Um, and so really thinking about how, um, you know, that that diversity um, or that kind of token level of engagement can actually be harmful to people. I mean, I said I was a member of the Unitarian Universalist Church and I love my people there, but I felt the burden of being a token um, you know, especially since they knew I was into racial justice, it was just like all of a sudden I was like being exhausted um, by all the things that they wanted me to do um, and all the conversations that they wanted me to have, um, but also the ones that they didn't want me to have, right? Um, and kind of the harm that came from, you know, me wanting to broach certain conversations and not being able to. But to your point about um, equality versus equity, the way that I look at, well, so we know like equality, it means that everybody gets the same thing, right? Um, and so if Phil, if Phil wears a size 10 shoe and loves, you know, a little platform wedge, um, that doesn't mean that that's what we're going to pass out to everybody, right? So that, but that's what equality is. Um, and even that, in a lot of ways, you know, things aren't, we're not even at equality, right? Um, so I can understand people saying like, ooh, maybe we can just get to equality and then move to the next step. Um, but really uh, we need to think about what people need um, and also um, the barriers that they face due to kind of our legacy of uh, systemic oppression and kind of think about how we can um, support people in the way that they need as opposed to um, you know, making that support standardized um, and, and centering, you know, continuing to uh, center the white experience, even as we're, you know, trying to uh, be uh, equitable um, and making sure that um, when, when you think of equity, you think of those living in the margins, those that are historically um, excluded and, and think about ways to center them but also decenter those identities that have been historically uh, centered. Um, and that's uncomfy for people who have been centered for a long time um, to think about how to de- 
to move past diversity to decentering whiteness. Well, they think it's, it's a, a zero sum game. Like if I decenter me and lift you up, somehow I'm losing something. So it becomes, sorry, it becomes interesting because sometimes for folks on the margins who've really never experienced anything other than the centering of whiteness in the white space as life, the idea of um, creating a belonging outside of that can be challenging because like we haven't seen any other options. And a lot of times representation ends up being, let's get some black and brown folk in those white positions, but not changing anything about the system that they're in. Sort of almost like assuming, oh, once we get some black and brown folk in here, they'll fix it, even whether intentionally or just by their presence. And it's not to say that they shouldn't be in those positions, but just putting them in the positions in the context of what already existed and not changing that isn't necessarily helpful. Like you say, there's that extra then burden of, okay, you're here now, let's fix it <laughs> uh, mm -hmm. sort of deal. So I think this question is sort of, that being said, now relating to, to, to YWCA, uh, who, who is your clientele really? Are you serving? Are you there to educate white folk? Are you there to create a space of belonging for black and brown folk, for women, for queer folk? Like, are you all of the above? Like, who, who are you serving really? Or who's your intention to serve? Yeah, so right now we primarily serve other nonprofits, um, a lot of them in central Ohio, but also, you know, outside of Ohio. And then we serve um, a lot of government institutions. So we had a huge contract with our local county government um, and was able to engage a bunch of different agencies within that. So the mental health, uh, child welfare, all those agencies that will be considered uh, under the county um, governance. Um, and then uh, the smaller uh, sector of our engagement is uh, for-profit companies. We do have some for-profits that engage us, but primarily it would be um, government, so including elected officials um, and then other nonprofits. And then based on the demographics um, that we've collected, uh, over half of our participants are white women. So it's a very... Uh, white woman heavy group because of how we focus on um, nonprofits. So think about, you know, who are the educators and the social service workers, um, and a lot of them are white women. When you work with the for-profit spaces and the government spaces, what's, what's your experience like in terms of acceptance, pushback, engagement? Is it the same now, both um, quantity and quality as it was, you know, back in 2020, when all of America suddenly realized we still do have a racism problem. Um, and everybody was all excited to get people in and, you know, do the work. Um, and now three years later, there's sort of been maybe a cooling of that enthusiasm is the best way I'll say. <laughs> um, so just so, a year later. <laughs> yeah, I, I know, I know, but we're here. We're, we're here three years later, going on four now. Yeah. So yes, that's Definite cooling, um, and not even just cooling. Like 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 the pushback is just not not even a secret anymore. To the point where many organizations are changing the name of their programs and the content from from DEI to something else just so they can get in the door. So I guess my question: Yes, what's what's the engagement been like? Pushback, uh, willingness to engage, participate. How how's that been for for you? Yeah. Um, so I would say we've had a pretty steady stream of interest um, since I started at my program in 2001, and it was sort of a budding program. Um, and so the um, interest, I feel like, was gaining momentum and really hasn't uh, slowed down much since then, even with kind of this uh, whole anti-CRT uh, rhetoric going out there and this anti-wokeness. Um, a lot of our partners, which are social service agencies and nonprofits and even local governments, are just like, okay, we hear what the feds are saying and even what folks are saying in the state house, but we know that our community expects us to be doing this work. And so I feel like 
Um, you know, they're keeping a pulse on what's going on at, at the state level and the federal level, but they also, our partners, I feel like they understand that they have to continue engaging this work. And so a lot of our partners um, have, you know, been repeat engagers and have been really large institutions with, you know, hundreds of staff. And so we've been able to make um, a huge impact and in, in just from, you know, those folks that we've engaged kind of moving around in the city or uh, inviting us to engage other communities that they belong to. Um, like we, we can barely keep up with the interests, um, which I love. Um, and so hoping we can continue to increase that capacity, especially as we get more um, contracts outside of Ohio. We definitely need to figure out how to keep this momentum up. Well, I mean, if you've got more work than you can handle, I mean, throw some our way. We can have to, uh, <laughs> take up some of that. Take up some of that uh, slack. Slack for you. Talk a little bit more detail about some of the programs, the trainings that you that you offer, um, both the and that you teach yourself personally. What, what what will folks? What can folks expect when they show up to an event or a training or a t course or whatever? Yeah, so our primary engagements um, are related to racial equity. Um, so that's one category. And then we also have belonging, um, which we encourage folks to take advantage of the racial equity engagement first because the belonging kind of scaffolds the learning. Um, and then we have restorative practices programming, which um, people can engage at any point. I feel like um, regardless of where you are in your journey, um, you can engage restorative practices as opposed to the racial equity and belonging. Um, I have to be a little bit more cautious about what uh, where the group is um, so that there isn't any harm done to me or my co-facilitator or, um, you know, we just waste our time because it's a unproductive conversation. And so we do have those conversations ahead of time. So I, I want to, can I, I just want to interrupt for a second, because you've yeah. said a few times about when you're talking about being in the group, about being cautious. And I'm just, and I'm listening to you because you've, you've used the term a few times that uh, like someone listening to this, I'm not sure that they might get exactly what you mean when you say about being cautious. Yeah. Um, so we um, probably within a couple of months of me um, starting where I am now, um, we engaged with a partner um, that was already kind of under contract when I got there. So I wasn't privy to a lot of like the, the meetings beforehand. Um, and so, you know, me and my colleague developed this, um, this workshop and facilitated it virtually because it was like, we were in the height of COVID. Um, and it was a shit show, to be honest, it was terrible. Um, they were, you know, very uh, belittling and microaggressive toward me and my colleague who are Black women, um, and they uh, were just very critical, um, and it, you know, caused harm to me and my colleague and really didn't help them um, with the, the tensions and the conflicts that they already had within their group. Um, that I wish I was privy to before mm. I engaged them. And so that was a hard lesson, especially for my colleague who was a little newer to facilitating. Um, okay. I, by that time, had already um, been, you know, microaggressed by many of folks during uh, workshops to, to know not to take it personally. Um, right. But I knew that going forward, you know, part of that that kind of work and coordination process before we engage with someone was to gauge their readiness and talk about, okay. um, you know, specific topics or uh, types of conflict that they might be experiencing in their organization so that we have a heads up and don't, you know, step on some landmines. Right. Um, and organizations are pretty open with us. I've been surprised how I'll hop on a partner meeting um, with an organization and they're just like Bruh! like they're just sharing their frustrations and the ways that they've been harmed or witnessed harm they're just like help us yeah. <laughs> um, and it goes beyond just racial equity it goes you know 
into uh, the ways that we've assimilated and, and adopted dominant culture norms that are really harmful, right. um, especially how we manage people um, and the way that organizations are structured. It just lends itself to harm. Um, and so people are really looking um, at how they can do things differently because they've been victimized themselves or have, you know, just witnessed a lot of harm. Yeah, it's, you know, it, it's like nothing grows in the comfort zone, right? So it's kind of a little afflicting people's comfort and knowing where, you know, too far, where no one's going to listen, Um you know, or everything that you described. So I just wanted to, you know, the um, being cautious, I just wanted some clarity on that. So now I, I can let you go back to Ogan's question about what to expect when, when someone, you know, comes to a program or an event. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I said um, racial equity, um, which um, I feel like is one of our harder hitting sessions because we are unapologetic about kind of our history and we do um, focus on anti-Black racism specifically because, I mean, we only have so much time. We'll be here all day if we, if we didn't narrow it down to really, you know, the, some of the folks that were, that are getting the brunt um, of this uh, oppression historically and currently. Um, and so we are intentional about focusing on anti-Black racism, um, but really, um, you know, engaging folks in, in a variety of ways to suit different learning styles. So, you know, visual, audio, um, even tactile learning experiences to help people make um, connections to the history, but also to how it's showing up in their day-to-day. -day. Um, and one of the, the conversations that I really appreciate um, is our conversations about the social construction of race, because folks are just like, oh, racism's bad, let's fight it. And they don't even understand, you know, what race it is. They haven't even thought about, you know, how they identify, um, you know, how racial categories were invented and the purpose um, of that invention. And that information will change the, completely change the way that you approach um, race, racism and anti-racism if you have that historical context um, and are able to really examine your own identities. Uh, well, uh, in the past workshops we've done, one of my favorite questions that stumps a lot of people, a lot of white folk is we would ask them, when did you first realize you were white? And the, like the, the, you could see the eyes, the jaws kind of drop a little bit and the eyes kind of wander off to like, I, I, I know that I am, but was there a time I didn't think that I was? Or like, you're right. So many people never contemplated the fact that their identity as a racial being doesn't just happen. <laughs> it's it's taught. It's 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 learned. Uh, it's absorbed by the culture we live in, and it's you know black and brown folk. We kind of don't have a choice to do it because you know, especially in the states we grow up being told we don't belong in essence. So now it's like, oh, why don't I? So we have no choice but to think about that. Uh, whereas white folks, uh, they kind of, you know, take it for granted. Even here, I'm in Barbados. I grew up here uh, till, you know, I was 1920. And as a formal, former British colony that's currently like, I don't know, 97, 98% black folk, uh, we still we still have that struggle of um, really really still trying to identify our belongingness with whiteness and 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 white culture and and all the things. So it's it's a it's a very challenging um, you're right journey to make. How does this go over in a place like? Ohio, because we threw Florida under the bus earlier, but I mean, you know, Ohio yeah, kind of got some mission. We're Florida yeah. junior, unfortunately. Right. So, so how is how is this going over in 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 Ohio? And are you? Uh, this is this is the wrong question to ask, but I'm going to ask it anyways. Uh, are you seeing Are you seeing the impact of it in any way, shape, or form anywhere? Or are folks just 
you know, coming, showing up, doing the things, and then just going about business as usual? Are you, the question I'm asking is, do you feel like what you're doing is actually making a difference, especially given what we see rolling out of Ohio these days? Yeah, um, Ohio is, I feel like a, a special place to be doing this kind of work. Um, like I said, are you, it, using, I, are you using <laughs> special affectionately or are we air quoted special? <laughs> yeah, I was wondering if that was a euphemism <laughs> for something. Okay, just check. Yeah. Because like I said, it's kind of like Florida Junior um, in the way that there's like this pipeline between Ohio and Florida. Like there's lots of people that have lived in both places and all their lives. They're going up and down. I don't know if it's the highway system or what that connection is. Um, but there's like a straight line uh, between the two, both, you know, from because of the highway, but also politically. Um, there's a lot of political connections between Ohio and Florida. And I don't know enough a lot about politics to kind of know like, OK, what families are, because usually you can trace it back to, you know, old money and families and, and, and old politics. Well, certainly, um, certainly today there's a, you know, James Comer and DeSantis, you know, that's not a. That's not a huge leap, you know. One's a and governor, I'm one's sure a congressman, but you know. <laughs> oh, and I'm sure it gets real deep. Um, yeah, you know, the more that you dig. Um, but with Ohio being uh, a pretty pivotal state uh, for most um, national elections, too, um, it, it does feel like kind of a war zone a lot of times. Um, Actually, like I, I misspoke. It's Jim Jordan. It's I, I get the. Comer and Jordan confused because they're clones of the virus. So just for the podcast, wanted to to fix the name. Clarify. Um, so we know which, which, you know, spawn of Satan I'm talking about. It's Jim Jordan. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, between like the, you know, basically Ohio, um, the conservatives in Ohio pretty much adopting the same, um, the same, you know, policies and rhetoric um, coming right out of Florida. And then, you know, with us being considered a swing state, um, it does feel like a really important battleground. And I don't even like to use like warlike language or violent language, um, but it's a struggle um, because, you know, even though Ohio, you know, Ohio has, I would imagine has, you know, a reputation of being a bunch of cornfields and very conservative. Um, but in the metropolitan areas, so Columbus, uh, Cincinnati, Cleveland, um, you know, there's a lot of uh, folks of color. There's a lot of uh, more progressive folks, um, and they are here fighting for their lives, literally um, fighting for reproductive rights, um, fighting for gender affirming care, fighting for their children to learn about their own history in schools instead of continuing to learn about, you know, more and more old white men all the time, all day, every day. Um, and so it, it's an interesting place and, it, and it's one of the many reasons I've, I'm still in Ohio, despite the frustrations and the cold winters. <laughs> I feel like that I am making an impact. Um, just yesterday, um, I received a voicemail from a former participant who had now went on to work for another organization and they um, were very um, just complimentary about the impact my workshop had had on them and how they wanted me to come back and, and train you know, their colleagues at this new organization um, in, and even in session. Um, you know, we have some sessions that are very small and intimate um, and some sessions that are a bit larger um, but nonetheless, um, I think it's helpful that me and my colleague both have social work backgrounds because it's almost like doing group work. Um, you see people really kind of grappling with some histories that have been withheld from them for a long time or coming to some realizations that they may have caused some harm, even some racist harm in the past. And they, you know, they're just realizing all this stuff all at once. Um, and they're at their workplace next to, you know, some colleagues that they may or may not know that well. And so it takes some, um, it takes a lot of thought to, to create that environment where people uh, 
can can grow and experience that discomfort and sometimes experience like a whole paradigm shift. Um, I imagine that's really uncomfortable, especially depending on the setting and in your relationship with the other people in the room. And and continuing to to you know witness your whiteness, <clears throat> you know, to every day. It's not if or when, but how you prop up systems of oppression and being willing to check in on yourself, um, not to guilt or shame, but just, oh, look, there I am. And it's hard, it's, you know, building the resiliency for it. And I just know too many white folks that are, I don't want to work that hard. I mean, it is hard work. <laughs> yep. We just keep, I keep plugging along at it and, you know, it's, it definitely, for me, it's a, more of a grassroots, like the 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 work, those that are willing to do the embodied anti-racism work and and you know racial equity is more of like like let's I'll just use churches as an example. It's the it's like the congregants are more willing to engage than any than the leadership. So yeah. it's just sort of you know grassroots and they just sort of take the work into wherever they are and small but mighty. Yeah, I see that with a lot of the nonprofits we engage, um, where they might, you know, try to be thoughtful about how they divide up the group. So they might want, you know, managers in one group, executives in another group, frontline service members in a group, just, you know, trying to be conscious of those power dynamics um, and training their direct service compared to training their executives is like two different organizations. Like the executives are just like, oh, wow, this is, I could tell y'all struggling with this. And then the direct service workers, they could co-facilitate the workshop for me. Like they know this stuff. They might be gaining some, you know, some new language um, or examples, um, you know, the level setting is important, but a lot of the folks that are doing the work already um, have the lived experience um, and just, um, you know, they are having important conversations about perhaps how they have inter internalized some of that oppression. And I think that's important for, you know, uh, people of color as well as white body individuals, you know, how we've kind of soaked in some of this, uh, this broth that we've all been marinating in um, and, and how that impacts us, you know, on a subconscious level. Um, something I, I try to practice myself is just learning more and more about how my brain works. And so, you know, Daniel Kahneman's work um, about, you know, the subconscious and implicit bias has really informed me um, and, and helped me evaluate my own biases and, and be more intentional about countering them um, and, and, ex and exposing myself to um, or in, uh, widening my circle of concern, um, if I want to use Unitarian Universalist language, um, so that I can, um, you know, just be more informed about identities outside my own. I'm, I'm so glad you you mentioned that part about about your own personal work. So besides besides facilitating this work for others, and you're also doing your own work, as you know, Kelly and I can attest, it is yes, exhausting all around. <laughs> and more often than not, then we have to find those spaces where, you know, we can find our own uh, restoration, our own rest, our own. So, so on a personal level, how how do you find that? I know you're, I, I know you're an artist as well. So I don't, I don't want to assume that that's your only outlet. But what what are those ways that you find your own restoration? What are your own personal fill restorative practices? Mm -hmm. um, I I really appreciate what Reverend Kelly was mentioning earlier. Um, as she was promoting the affinity groups um, and talking about how this is inside out work um, and kind of, you know, how we need to embody this work. Um, because uh, my first area of study was in health and wellness. So I was all about, I was like an athlete and all about, you know, fitness and wellness. Now my, my focus has kind of transitioned to more like community wellness um, and how that you know, we are as only as well as our community and vice versa. Like when we are not well, then that impacts our community. Um, and so 
I done lost my thought. I'm sorry. It's all good. It happens. In this background. <laughs> um, it's yes, all, it's embody, okay. yes. Uh, so talking about how I embody um, my activism. Um, and so I was able to take a embody activism session through the embody lab a couple years ago. Um, and I'm still like reeling from that content and, and actually am inspired to go and revisit uh, that content uh, because it talks a lot about you know, the ways that we have internalized oppression. Um, so talking about how we may appease, you know, white bodied individuals, um, because, you know, for our own safety, right? When the white people around us are safe, that feel safe, that means that I feel safe, right? Um, but then figuring out, you know, how to undo this automatic appeasement that might happen um, and then, you know, that implicit bias work. So thinking about the ways that I might treat different bodies um, in a way that doesn't register consciously, right? You know, how I might be walking through the streets of downtown right outside my office, and I might acknowledge, you know, a well-dressed uh, person, you know, in a suit, but perhaps may not even notice, you know, the, the person that, you know, looks unhoused and, um, it's also walking past me, right? You know, those mm -hmm. things happen on a sub subconscious level, but nonetheless, it impacts everyone I interact with. It impacts that person in the business suit who, you know, I might say hi to and then they ignore me and then vice versa. It impacts that person that's sitting on the corner and people are just walking past them all day and not acknowledging them. Um, and so knowing that I can't, you know, my locus of control, you know, only goes so far. Um, but it's still very powerful in the ways that I um, decide to engage myself, engage other people, even how I wear my hair and you know what I put on my body, what I eat, everything that to do with my body is a form of activism. And we may have actually met it because I did that at the Embody Lab. I actually did it twice, um, yes. four years ago and then three years ago because it was, I did it twice because it was, there was so much. Um, and then it the second time it rich. changed up a little bit because, you know, you learn from the first time, but yeah, it's, there's all of it. I'm always returning to it. And there's, there's a never ending supply of, you know, um, experiential things, information, can I, you know, it's, yeah, cool. That's a good I loved it. I recommend it. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Is that is that I did a couple of I did a couple of things with them. I wonder if I was in that one too. It's all yeah, the second blur. time I did it, we you yeah, were there. I was yeah. there too. Okay. All right then. Look at that. Small world. Yep, <laughs> so you belong. There. <laughs> yeah. Three hundred of your closest cohort. friends. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Uh it was it was a good time. Um talk to us um and won't keep you for much longer. Um Talk to us about your art. Is your art also part of your expression of activism or is your art um, a thing you just do for yourself as a creative outlet? And yeah, I'm curious curious about, about the art piece. Yeah, um, so I've been a visual artist since before I can remember. I mean, uh, my visual, my drawing aptitude was noticed very early on. Um, and a lot of people pressured me to go to art school or design school. Um, and I did eventually go back for a second bachelor's in design, um, but I dropped out because it was terrible. They were not ready to uh, support a young black woman in the design mm -hmm. field. It was, it was a pretty terrible year <laughs> trying to make that work, um, which was even worse because I was so excited about the programming. Um, so forth to let me down in that way. It was um, very disheartening. Um, but since then, I've decided that, you know, I can still be an artist and designer without, you know, any more formal training. Um, actually, I don't think I need much more formal training in anything. Um, I don't need to take out any more loans. Um, <laughs> That's the truth. To, really, <laughs> yeah. to validate myself, right? Um, you know, nice. there's this this kind of, this balance between, you know, me overcompensating because I am in a, a, a black female body. Um, and so then having to, you know, uh, have these credentials um, to be looked at as an expert or to earn a living wage, right? 
but then also trying to strike this balance with, okay, I don't need, you know, the white man's credentials to tell me, you know, about my lived experience or to really inform my work, right? Um, and so my art, I would say more recently has been um, fueled by my, my passion around racial justice. And so that includes um, me dabbling in some poetry, um, writing sermons for my congregation and delivering those, which I consider an art form. Um, even the way that I design our workshops and that engagement experience is an art form um, because I have to be so um, cognizant and in tune with the group um, and, and, and do a lot of work in the beginning of the session to kind of cultivate this, this courageous space. Um, ahead of time. Um, and it is design work and the spiritual work and the social work all combined together. Um, and so um, my art uh, my art also shows up in the way that I dance and move my body. I've been a dancer since I can remember as well. Um, and so not only, um, you know, dancing is good for me in a lot of ways, right? It's good for my physical fitness, but also for my emotional and spiritual well-being to just move my body, feel my body, um, tune into the music. Nice. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. Um, is there is there a place if folks wanted to go see like the visual art pieces that they could go online or, or you don't have stuff up there? Uh, no, I don't really produce a lot of visual art. Um, most of my artistry comes out in the way that I design experiences for groups, gotcha. um, those learning experiences. Yeah, um, no, so folks can reach out to me directly if they're interested in, you know, some kind of facilitation or um, YWCA's programming. Um, I would be happy to, to talk to you about it. So first of all, thank you for taking the time to be with us. Uh, there's just yes. one, one more piece left I want to do. But before I do that, is there any like, I don't know, closing message or invitation you want to give to the listeners and the folks out there um, as as they go forward? Mm. Um, I kind of want to reiterate what Dr. Kelly said about this being inside out work. Um, there are so many ways that we've kind of inherited and adopted um, colonizing culture, basically. And, and also a lot of ways that we've been harmed. Um, and unless we do the internal work of healing ourselves and, and breaking, you know, and get, getting rid of the, our inner oppressor, um, then the only option we have is to perpetuate that harm that we're still suffering from. And so until we do that internal work um, or doing that internal work is going to make you more effective at, you know, producing the change and outcomes that you want to see. Awesome. Um, so when we interview guests, we always like to close our conversation with uh, a series of quick fire questions that say a lot about you, but really don't tell us much anything. But uh, so, <laughs> so uh, don't overthink the question, just go with your gut response. Originally, these were either or questions, but recently I've been realizing that either or questions is just another embracing of the binary. So I made them. You now have three Thank options. You. To, you're welcome. You. you now have three options to choose oh. from, for, except the last question. And I that's couldn't more, really. That's more than the um, party systems that we have. So exactly. <laughs> exactly. So again, don't overthink. Just go with your, your gut reaction um, as we hit you with these questions. Okay, so. Chocolate, vanilla, or strawberry? Chocolate, for sure. Right. Star Wars, Star Trek, Stargate. I don't even know Stargate, but Star Trek, for sure. <laughs> that works. Uh, bear, wine, or weed? Weed, for sure. I concur. Mexican, Chinese, or Indian food? Indian food. <laughs> City, country, or suburb? I'm gonna go with country. Ebook, audiobook, or real book? I'm gonna go with audiobook for fiction and paper book for nonfiction. Yeah. Oh, mm. I like how you I split. Said. I like that. Yeah. I don't think everyone's That's ever how my done brain that before. Works. 
There you go. There you go. That works. That works. Uh, and finally, Netflix or chill? <laughs> Netflix. I thought it was Netflix and chill. <laughs> don't, again, don't overthink. Why do I have to choose? <laughs> And that's a perfectly acceptable answer. Thank you very much. Both and. I like it. Perfect. I like it. Perfect. <laughs> there you go. Oh, my goodness. Thank you so much again, Phil, for uh, being here, uh, sharing of yourself and about your work. I'll put links in both the show notes and on social media to, you know, you guys' face, uh, website at the YWC in Columbus and folks want to reach out to you if folks if folks wanted to for example like you know listen to this and go like oh i like what they said i want to i want to bring them to my workplace i want to bring them to my spiritual community or whatever you do you do work outside of cincinnati right and or columbus here in columbus you do work outside right yeah yes so we travel we also do a lot of virtual engagements Awesome. Awesome sauce. All right. Uh, so yeah, again, thank you. Um, thank, thank you, you. To, uh, to our folks who are always listening and subscribing. Uh, as always, uh, you can find us on all the podcast platforms. If you got that one friend who still doesn't know what a podcast is, we are online at with love and justice for all Please visit project Sanctus to make a donation to help keep the strain on the tracks. Please join us for our affinity groups Again, twice a month. If there's nothing else you do. Come get in the conversation with us. Get uncomfortable with us. Uh, do some restorative work with us. Um, we are because we're all in this together. As Phil pointed out, this is a community effort. We just we can't we can't we can't do anti-racism on our own. Like that doesn't make sense. So we we got to be in this uh, together. And also, please check out our conscious anti-racism part one uh, self-learning course and didn't mention earlier uh, we have economic justice pricing for that program so we have three different pricing tiers and we trust you to choose the one that meets you where you're at and if none of them do and you still want to engage in that program please reach out to us don't just assume oh this is too much so i can't afford it no reach out to reverend kelly and i i'm always good for trading services and finding some creative ways for folks to make sure they're engaged with our work we need to eat but we also don't ever want anything to be inaccessible to you because of financial issues so that's all we got uh tune in next time we have a we have uh, two guests come in on the show next time, and they both are here to talk about um, technology and AI um, from a Black perspective and how we can really uh, do a lot of decolonizing of the tech space. Um, if you want to do some homework before then, go check out the podcast Moral Repair. That's M-O-R-A-L, Moral Repair. It's absolutely brilliant. Yeah, I think that's it for today. So until we meet again. Let's get our holy on. Holy on.